All right, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Today, what I want to talk about, we're in this series during the month of August. We're just calling the gospel and. And what we're doing here is simply saying the gospel is we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but, but, but grace never stands alone. Faith never stands alone. That is that it actually produces things in us and, and compels us to do things. So last week we said really the very first thing that the gospel does for us is it produces obedience to the commands of Christ. And the first command of Christ to somebody who becomes a follower is to be baptized. And so I'm not going to preach that sermon again. You want to hear about that, go back and listen to last week. But today we're going to baptize a bunch of people who were obedient to that command. In fact, I think we have 18 people ready to be baptized uh, today across our services. And so I praise God for that. If people would just say, man, I want to be obedient to Jesus. But that's not where it stops, right? It keeps going and it produces things in our lives and these activities and these behaviors in response to the gospel. Now, make sure you don't get this turned around. It's not, I do these things so that therefore God will love me and will accept me. No, he's accepted me, he's loved me, and therefore I do these things. Radically different. One is religion, the other is gospel Christianity. And that's what we want you to hear today, okay? So 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, before you get there, let me remind you of maybe the most famous passage in all of Scripture. That if you grew up in church any time, you, you know this probably by heart. And of course, I'm talking about John 3.16, which simply says, For God, you, some of you could recite it with me, so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. Now, every word of that is important. God so loved the world, this wicked, sinful world, that he gave his only son. What do you cherish more than anything in the world? Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's, maybe it's a home. Maybe it's a possession. I don't know what it is. What do you cherish more than anything in the world? Would you be willing to give that thing to somebody who probably would never even say thank you? God so loved the world that he gave his most precious possession. So, so here's what I want you to hear. That when we talk about generosity, like it is absolutely connected at the hip to the giving of God. God gives and therefore we give. And this is really what you're going to see today. So when we get to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, here's what's happening. Okay, let me give you a little context. Paul is writing to this church on this peninsula in this area of Asia Minor called Achaia, and it's a church called Corinth. And he's writing there for various reasons. This is his second, maybe even his third letter there. We have two of them in scripture. But in any event, he writes to them and he's got a lot of things he needs to discuss with them. But at one point he turns his attention and says, you've heard about what's going on in Jerusalem. And there's been severe poverty. There's been awful, there's been famine. There's, there's a lot of affliction that has come to the people in Jerusalem. So Paul then goes about talking to the churches that he's already visited, some in Achaia, Corinth, and he goes up into Macedonia and he asks these churches, will you please give to relieve the saints in, in Jerusalem? 
And so they all begin to collect an offering. They say, yeah, Paul, we'll do that. And he, he points out there's one church that sort of went above and beyond what every other church did. And it's the churches in Macedonia, this region. In fact, we have a book in our Bible called Philippians, which is written to a church in that region that talks about even their giving and probably who Paul is talking about. And so he writes them, and when he gets to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he's, he turns this idea of how the gospel, how the truth that God so loved the world that he gave his only son translates into Christian giving. And so he's going to tell us this is what it should look like. Christian, now here, I'm, I'm talking to Christians today. Christians, this should be our relationship to money. This should be how we view finances. This should be how we look at giving. And to the extent this doesn't describe you, then, then you can say, Lord, help me. Like, because this is obviously where my heart is supposed to be. So all I want to do is go through, and listen, there's a lot. We could come up with 20 more principles that I don't have time to get to this morning. And so we're going to kind of take chunks and then go and sort of drill down and show you some things in individual verses. But bear with me, and we're going to try to make our way through these two chapters of 2 Corinthians uh, verses 8 and 9. All right, so let's start 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's read, start reading in, verses one, in verse 1, and we'll get to verse 7. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given given among the churches of Macedonia. So that's the area where Philippi is. Now he describes the grace of God in their giving. He says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So back in Jerusalem, he's talking about them. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus, that's one of his companions, that as he had, had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So Titus is now coming to Corinth and I'm asking him to sort of make sure your offering is ready. But, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now, what's this act of grace? Grace, 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 Paul talks about. Here's what I want you to hear. Paul says, the Bible's teaching us, what God wants us to understand is that, is that generosity is the fruit of the grace of God. It originates with God. God so loved the world that he gave. It's a gift. And now Paul's gonna say that gift, when it comes in the human heart, produces the fruit of that is that we will be financially generous. In other words, this is, a, this is not a man-made thing that I become generous. This is a God-wrought thing that I become generous. How else do we explain that when he talks about Macedonia, here's a church, here's the churches of that area that gave out of severe affliction, extreme poverty, and yet they gave. How do you do that? How do you give when that's your financial situation? Like you understand, severe affliction, extreme poverty. 
This is bottom of the barrel stuff. This is not Glendora. This is not most 99% of the people in this room. This is people who are, there's no social safety net. There's, there's no you know, universal health care. There's nothing like this to protect them from living on the streets. And out of that, they give. How do you explain that? It's the grace of God. Paul says this is a gift that God gives to us. Now listen, I, I, Paul isn't doing this and I don't want to do this. I don't want to be guilty of, of, of you know, saying, you know, man, I feel super guilty. I walked out of church, Pastor Chris, you know, that scripture, uh, if it convicted, fine. But the point is not to make us feel guilty. The point is some ways to make us scratch our head and go, how does this happen? How do people from extreme poverty, severe affliction, and yet with joy give like that? In fact, do you notice this? All the things he says, they begged us. Like I was about to wrap up the sermon. I'm going to go on my way. And they're like, Paul, no, just stop. You better take an offering. We are begging you, please let us give to this. See, this is crazy, right? How do we explain it? It's the grace of God. It's, it's something that only God can do. The gospel produces generosity. When I believe what Christ has done for me, and you're going to see this. See, the only, only thing that severs the root of greed, what's greed? It's just sort of, a, I want to hold on. I don't want to give away. I want to amass for myself. I, I, I don't want you to have what I have, because if you have, then that means I have less. So I'm, I'm greedy. The only thing that will sever that root is the grace of God in the gospel. Helping us see exactly what Christ did for us. Generosity is the fruit of the gospel. Generosity is is a fruit of God's grace. All right, that's the first thing. Second thing is this, is that Christians should be ready and willing to give, right? That's that our generosity should be ready and willing. And I want you to notice how he says this. Like he's already said it in a few ways, but go to verse eight. I'm gonna swing back to verses one through seven again. We're gonna see lots of things in here, but follow me for a second. I say this not as a command, chapter eight, verse eight, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know that, there it is, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was poor, um, th 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 though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. What's he talking about? He's talking about giving. A year ago when I told you about this, it stirred you up. You desired to give to what's happening in Jerusalem, he says. Verse 11, so now finish you pledge, now finish your pledge, if you will. Finish doing it well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased uh, and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs. So their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack." Okay, now, do you hear, I want you, I want you to hear right now is over and over. He says, ready, they're ready, you're ready. Look, go over to, go over to verse, uh, chapter nine, because he kind of continues this thought. 
Now, it's superfluous me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. This is, he's talking about Jerusalem again. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Verse 4, otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find you're not ready, we would be humiliated and say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you, arrange in advance for the gift, the financial gift you promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not an exaction. Go down to verse 7. Each one must give as he decided in his own heart, not reluctantly, under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. We'll come back to that verse in a moment. But do you hear what I'm saying? That he's saying what ought to characterize Christian generosity is there's a readiness. There is a willingness to give. I'm just like, I'm always at the ready. I'm always willing. I'm not being compelled, right? So in other words, this is, this is not reluctant. My giving should never be reluctant. God loves a cheerful giver. That, that, that there, be, there be joy in the midst of this. Now, this is interesting, by the way, because I started off by saying, Paul started off by saying, the grace of God has produced this in you. The reason you're generous is because God sovereignly moved on your heart to feel concern, and then he sustained that concern and then gave you gifts so that you might supply the needs that he concerned you with. Hey, follow? Now, he says, but I want it to be willing. So is there a contradiction here? In other words, which is it? Does God sovereignly move on the heart to give and produce that fruit, or do we give willingly? And the answer is yes. We give because sovereignly, God sovereignly moves on our hearts to give. See, this is how God works. God works in such a way that I would say I gave willingly. But I wouldn't have done it unless God moved on my heart. This is what Paul's saying. So both of these are true. In fact, Paul's going to say to the Philippians, the church in Macedonia, that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's doing that. So when you work for God, God produced that. In fact, even the willingness, the desire, I want to, he says, comes from God. We ought to be ready and willing. And when we see that ready and willingness, it doesn't come from guilt or coercion. It comes voluntarily. It comes from a heart that's been changed by Jesus. That's the idea. Okay, keep going. Number three, generosity should be proportional to our wealth. Now go back with me. And again, we're going to kind of go back and forth on this. So just watch this. Look at verse three again. He's talking about Macedonia. And he says, they gave according to their means. And then he says, above their means. Like they, they went above and beyond what I would have ever expected of them. Look down at uh, verse um, 11. He says, so now finish doing it well. He's talking to Corinth. So that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by completing it out of what you have. Give out of what you have. I'm not asking you 
to get what you don't have. In fact, it's going to go on to say that. I'm saying give out of what you have. And then go over to chapter 9 and remember what we said there in verses 5 and 7. What does he say? So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to arrange in advance for the gift you promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift. Verse 7, each one must give as he decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So here, here's what I want you to see, that, that, that God says, in fact, I'm sorry, go, go over to, I want, I want you to see one more thing. Look at, look at chapter 8 and go to verse 13. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Generosity should be proportional. In other words, not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. See, the Old Testament said this. In fact, it was like a tax. In the Old Testament, you had what was called a tithe, which meant 10%. You, you had to give. Some scholars believe that ancient Israelites were required to give anywhere between 10% and 21% of everything they brought in. Can you imagine this? And it was, it was like a tax. You had to pay it. You get to the New Testament, Jesus never says that. He, Paul never says that. There's no percentage that says, here's what you must give. You've got to give this percentage. What does he say? What each has decided in his own heart to give. We'll talk about that more in detail in a minute. But giving out of our abundance, giving out of what we have, right? So the percentage, Paul never gives us a percentage, and apparently he's not very concerned about that. What he's concerned is about the heart that goes behind the giving. What is motivating your heart or not motivating your heart? Are you being motivated by the gospel or something else? So, so then what's the rule? Because, man, it seems like we, we want to find a rule to land on. Chris, what am I supposed to give? What am I not supposed to give? How am I supposed to determine what I should do? Well, again, I'm going to talk about this in a moment, maybe a little more spe specifically, but, but here's what I would say. You give to the extent that grace enables you to give. You give, let's say it this way, to the measure of your thankfulness for what Christ has done for you. See, God, again, he's not looking for equal gifts. He's looking for equal sacrifice. It's, it's, it's a heart that says, I will make radical sacrifices for God and for his kingdom and for his people and for the agenda of God in the world because Jesus has made a radical. God gave his only son. He made the most radical sacrifice. See, so if I were to say 10% and Jesus never says this and Paul says that and never says that, if I said 10%, for some of you, that'd be like, that is, that is you don't understand, that's literally not possible. I'm a single mom or single dad. I, I have a fixed income. I can barely put food on the table and there's some demand for me to give 10% of my income? So for some of you, that, that's, that doesn't even seem like it's in the realm of possibility. But for others of you, 10% of your income would do nothing to your lifestyle. It would be like, I, sure, I could give away 10% and I could live very, very comfortably. See, so for some, 10% may be a goal. For, an, for others, it might just be a starting point. Like, I'm going to be radically, that's the whole idea. I'm going to be radically generous. Remember, remember in, in Luke 21, Jesus 
pulls his disciples aside. They're in the temple. People are coming and giving their, their offerings. And, you know, the Pharisees come. They like to make a show, you know, get all the coins and ching-a-ling-a-ling into the, into the offering plate, you know, so everybody would hear how much they gave. And in walks a poor widow quietly behind all this. And she maybe skulks up there. Maybe she even feels shame because she can't make the offering bucket just ring with all of her coinage. And she drops one coin and it barely makes a sound. And Jesus pulls the disciples and says, guys, just watch what just happened. That woman gave more than everybody because she gave out of her poverty. They gave out of their abundance. See, see what, what is God saying? I, I, want, I want proportionality. Do you understand? Listen to me. Statistically speaking, the most generous people in the world are the poor and middle class. That in fact, the more money you make, the less you give as a percentage of your income. That's just statistics. In other words, we're not proportional. Somehow we get to a place in our income level that we think, well, this is enough. I surely don't have to go beyond this. And God is saying, is there any sacrifice? Is it just, yeah, I write the check, I, I text the amount, I, I, I give online, I, I do that, and it, it absolutely makes no dent in my heart or my budget or my wallet or anything. Is your giving proportionate to your income? I, I can't tell you what that is. I can't tell you you must give this amount. I'm just asking, you've got to ask the questions. Does it reflect God's blessing in your life? See, it's really hard for me to believe someone would say, I love God, but I don't give. I give very, very little. That absolutely, it's like, you know, I drop a fiver in the offering when it comes by. I feel like I've done my duty. Or there's some people, let me tell you, Fiddle Church, we're not great at this. There are uh, massive swath of people at Fiddle Church who give nothing. Nothing. I love Jesus. Oh, he's done everything for me. He's transformed my life. You can't imagine I've been forgiven of my sin. My past was so awful. I have a home in heaven. He's done all these wonderful things for me, but I don't want to give a dime. It's like me saying, I love my wife, Michelle. You have no idea. You have no idea how much I love my kids and I adore them and they mean the world to me. And you come and you find my kids are sort of living in rags and, you know, they, they have nothing to provide for their needs. I've sort of hoarded it all to myself and I'm the one that has all the nice things in the house and I wear all the nice clothes and I get to drive all the nice cars and all of that sort of stuff, but they get nothing. You would be, you would be within your rights to come and say, I don't think you love your family. You say you do but you don't. Since you're giving proportional. The New Testament, by the way, does not have a category for a non-giving Christian. just doesn't. It assumes everybody will, as we'll see here in a moment. All right, let's keep going. 
Number four, generosity should be characterized by a spirit of reciprocity. Did you see that in verses 13 to 15, chapter eight, where, okay, you give and, and then, you know, because you're in abundance and then somebody else gives when they're in abundance, there's gonna be a time. In other words, God sets up things where probably in this room right now at Foothill Church, there are those of you who are living, I mean, God has just been incredibly gracious to you financially. Like, like you are just, you, are, you, you have an abundance of stuff. You have an abundance of, of cash and, 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 and God has just done great things for you. There's others of you in this room. That's not your story at all. You're living with scarcity. Isn't that amazing that God puts us all in the same room? It's beautiful, in fact. He puts us all in the same room. Why? So that those who have a lot can minister to those who have little so that when the tables turn, those who then have a lot can minister to those who have a little. And Paul says, so that there would be fairness. Like this ought to be how this works. This kind of reciprocity. God doesn't keep blessing you. Listen to me, some of you, God does not keep blessing you financially so that you can live in greater and greater luxury. Hear me, he doesn't begrudge that you have nice things. And I hope that somebody, you know, drove our Mercedes here this morning. People aren't gonna walk out and say, oh, look at that dude, like what a loser, right? No, listen, I'm not saying that. Maybe he would say sell the Mercedes. I can't tell you he wouldn't. But he might also say, you know, sell the Nissan. Like I'm doing this, I'm giving you these things, not so that you can hold them and live more luxurious. I'm giving them so that you'll look around, you'll open your eyes and you'll minister to the needs of others who don't have things as good as you. That's the idea. It ought, there ought to be a spirit of reciprocity. So it's not for more luxury, it's for more generosity. Okay, number five, generosity must be handled with integrity. So not secrecy, but transparency. So in fact, this is very interesting to me. Go down to chapter eight, verse 16. So Paul says, people are coming. They're gonna take up an offering. I want you to be generous. I want you to be radically generous as you give to this need that we've made you aware of. But he says this, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you. So I'm gonna send Titus to you. And he's gonna tell you what you need to do. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Probably that's Apollos. Verse 19, and not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. Now look at this. So there's Titus, there's Apollos, there's this other group of people traveling with him. And he says, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. Now, let me just translate what Paul just said. We're about to receive a boatload of cash. And what we're not gonna do is I'm not gonna say, hey, I'm an apostle, give it to me, I'll carry it where it needs to go. He says, no, I'm here, 
But Apollos, appointed by the churches, sort of an outsider. I've got Titus. We've got this group around us. We've got this accountability when it comes to these things so that as he says in verse 20, look at it again. Why are we doing this? We take this so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in God's sight, but in the sight of man. We want to be so transparent that it's not just, hey, before God, we know we're being honest. No, we can say before you, this is how we're handling your money. So how does this work at Foothill Church? Uh, let, me, let me just explain it very briefly to you. Let me, let me talk about me, okay? I, I, there's a lot of things maybe that would help you. I don't touch money at all. Like, like, I don't want to, that's intentional. If you come up to me and say, hey, Pastor Chris, can you give my check or whatever? No, I'm sorry, I can't, but you can give it to an usher, you can put it in a black box, something like that. I'm not, I can't sign a check. I don't know the combo to our safe. I have never sat down at the counting of an offering ever. And that would be true of most of the pastors in this place. Ike doesn't know the combo to the safe. Right? We, we, we do these things. Not only that, we, we have to have two checks, two, 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 two sig signatories for a check to go out. It can't just be one. We have to have multiple people in the room while the offering is counting. We've created a chain of custody with your offering to make sure it's never alone with one person, ever. Every I mean, from, from here to a box, to, a, to, a, to, to the safe, outside of that safe, into a room where it's counted, it's kept, it's transferred to the bank. All those kinds of things are done in a way where there's a chain of custody, where it's never alone, and so there's accountability. We became members. We have our, we have our, our, our books audited every single year by an independent accountant. We became a member of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability that puts on us all kinds of strictures. Why do I say that? For the same reason that Paul says this. We take this course so that no one should blame us about the generosity that you give to us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, we can know, hey, we're, we're above reproach, but we want you to see that we're above reproach. We want you to know that. We don't want to be secret. We want to be transparent. We want to handle the resource that God gives us with integrity and with safeguards around that. All right, number six, generosity shouldn't be impulsive, but thoughtful and prayerful. Now, we've already picked up on this, but go back again to chapter nine and look what Paul says. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, do you hear what he says? Not not reluctantly, not impulsively, but thoughtfully. In other words, you should never give because you just feel this impulse, somebody twisted your arm, somebody coerced you, oh my gosh, I feel so terribly guilty that whatever. No, you should give. We'll talk about that in a second. But not because somebody preyed on your emotions. See, Christian giving should be thoughtful. So what does it look like to not be coerced to not be impulsive, but to be thoughtful. I think it looks like saying things like this, like, like how can I budget? How can I be really deliberate in my giving? 
How can I make it systematic? Like, how, how can I, Lord, what would you want me to give in this year that shows that my heart has been changed by the gospel, that, that I am being as radically generous as I can? How can I show that? And specifically, what, what amount would you have me give? What percentage would you have me give of my income so that this is not just a hit and miss thing, but this is part of a lifestyle of generosity. I'm being thoughtful. I'm being deliberate. I'm being systematic. That's what I mean. See, let me, let me again, let me, let me give you a little window here. Um, as long as Michelle and I have been married, we have given a minimum of 10% of our, in, of our gross income to the church. Now, I, hear me, I'm not trying to brag to you. That's true of a lot of people. I'm, I want you to just hear this. That, that means a lot of things. That means I got a budget. Th that means I have to think about. So, so I mean, let me, let me give you like the real broad brush strokes to how we budget. We give, we save, we live on the rest. We give, we save, we live on the rest. We give, we save, we live on the rest. Can you do that with me? We give, we save, live on the rest. So what takes top priority? Every time. Every time. I, I don't, if you, if you say, I, I save and, and then live and then give, you put those things in any different order, most likely giving will fall to the bottom and guess what will happen to your giving? It'll go away. And God won't get anything. Or no, he'll get the leftovers. How many of you have leftovers at the end of the month? Not many, right? Somehow we figure out a way to use it all. So we give, we save, we live on the rest. So, so we say, okay, we're going to give this amount. And I say a minimum because there's been years we've said we're going to give more. Last year, we gave a little over 14% of our income. Now, again, I don't say it to you, wow, isn't the, we're giving it back to the church. That wasn't compelled. That wasn't the elder board sitting down and say, Chris, you must give. Nothing like that. It, it, it's coming from a place where saying, I want to do this. It's a joy to do this. It's a willing heart. I want to have that kind of readiness to give. But there's got to be thought that goes into that or it's never going to happen. There's no way you can give with that kind of percentage for any of you unless you're going to be thoughtful about it. Unless you're going to plan for it. Unless you're going to budget for it. It just doesn't happen. That's what Paul's saying, man. Don't worry. I'm not asking you to give impulsively. Hey, by the way, relax. The buckets have already passed. <laughs> right? It's over. This is more for you in the future and thinking about your lifestyle and thinking about whether you live this out. It should be thoughtful. It should be prayerful. Number seven, generosity should be cheerful and joyful. It's not I have to, it's I want to. This is what Paul's been saying. He talked about the Macedonians. He says, man, they gave in an abundance of joy, even though there was extreme poverty, severe affliction. He says in verse seven of chapter nine, God loves a cheerful giver. God loves that. Motives matter. It matters how you feel about your giving. He says, God loves it when it comes from a heart that hasn't been compelled or coerced or your arm twisted or, oh, no, I feel guilty. No, he said, man, I do this. This is not a duty. This is something I don't have to do. This is something I want to do. God puts that heart in you. That's, that's the gospel and. That's generosity coming out. 
But, but notice, he says, each one must give. Must. See, this is not an optional part of Christianity. This is not an optional part of what you and I do. We can debate. You can, we don't have to debate. I won't debate with you. You can say, here's what I have decided in my heart to give. Here's what you can't say. I have decided in my heart not to give. That is not Christian. The command of Scripture is that everyone must give. And yes, God wants it to come from a cheerful heart, but you must give. Giving is no more optional, hear me, Christian, than sexual purity. It is no more optional than telling the truth. What would you say of a man like me who says, I love my wife and I love Jesus more than anything, but I think it's okay if I'm sexually promiscuous? Say, whoa, 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 right? That, that's, not, that's not even true. You can't do that, Chris. Hey, everybody's got to lie to get ahead in the world. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus, but come on. Can't tell the truth all the time. Oh, you better. The Bible knows nothing of a non-giving Christian. It says you must give. What are you giving? Is it proportional? Are you giving generously? These are the kinds of questions. Okay, let's keep going. The last thing. Generosity is rooted in the gospel. Did you see that? We passed over it pretty quickly, but let me go back to it. Look at chapter 8 again. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is when he says that word for, he's grounding their giving in this reality. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that you by his poverty might become rich. Go over to chapter nine and listen to how he finishes this off. He says in, in verse 14, verse, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God. He says, when, you, when they receive your offering, he's talking about Macedonia, when they receive your offering, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel. In other words, you obeying what I'm saying is you showing that the gospel confession, oh, Jesus Christ, my Savior, he's forgiven me, he's, he's showered his grace upon me, is actually true. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, verse 14, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Jesus Christ was rich. He became poor so that in his poverty you might become rich. Paul looks at that and says, this is an absolutely inexpressible, I don't even have words for what God has done for us in Christ. I don't even know how to express this in all its entirety. It's not possible so that my giving is so tiny, right? Oh, whatever, you gave 10% last year, Chris, or 50 or 20 or 90%. It doesn't matter how much you give. Your gift is nothing compared to Christ's inexpressible gift. It is a copper penny exchange for the Taj Mahal. It's a worthless rock in exchange for the Grand Canyon. That's my giving. That's your giving. 
And it's inexpressible. And he says, look at Christ left the glory of heaven, taking the form of a servant, he tells the Philippians. All that so we might become rich. What does that mean? Let me let our friend Sam Storms help us here. He says this, here we must refuse to tolerate the spiritually sick and perverted claims of the prosperity gospel that would find here a reference to material gain. Our riches and wealth are the sort that cannot be earned by effort or secured at a sale. They are the gift of sovereign grace. Where does one begin to enumerate them? Election before the foundation of the world. Yes, forgiveness of sins. Yes, adoption of the family. Yes, justification by faith alone. Yes, union with Christ. Yes, the permanent dwelling of the presence of the Spirit. Yes, and above all, the richest and most precious blessing of all is God himself. He is our inestimable treasure. Beholding his beauty is our inheritance. Enjoying his excellency is our wealth. That's what it means. This is how we become rich. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal, everlasting life. Now, why, why does Paul tell us all this? Why does Paul spend two chapters? What's his aim? To stir up our lethargic souls, to give radically, generously, so that we can say with him, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. If you're a Christian, you serve the most ridiculously, radically generous being in the world the, the universe has ever known. He gave his only son. He gave his Holy Spirit. He gave you a new heart. He gave you a home in heaven. He forgave your debts. He gave you new life. I could go on and on and on of what Christ has done for you. And Paul says this is our motivation. This is where it comes from. So that, so that we look and say, man, this is a precise gauge. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Do you want to know the location of your heart? Is your heart in Christ? Is your heart fixed on the things of heaven? Is your heart enamored? Is it full of affections for Jesus Christ and for the kingdom and for the things that God is, is enamored with? Is it? You can say yes all day long, but if you want to know precisely the GPS pointer for where your heart is, then go to your checkbook, go to your bank account, look at your finances, and there it is. There's your heart. You've just found it. And your treasure has taken you all the way back to it. Where is it? See, some of you it is. Man, praise God, it is. It's like, man, it's there. And I know, I know we're not there perfectly, right? I understand it, 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 it's fickle and it, and it moves and it goes off base and we hear things like this and man, I want my heart to be back where it should be and, and, we, and we, we push our treasure to where our heart is. And so the answer is not give a bunch of money. The answer is, God, where's my heart? Please move my heart where I am stirred with passion for you and for your kingdom, where I am given concern for the things that concern you. I'm sustained in that. And then, God, you grant me the resources so that, man, I can give to the location of where my heart is now firmly planted. Do you see how this works? 
where's your heart? Has your heart been so changed, so radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that now, that now you say, man, I want to give and give generously. It's not a duty, it's a delight. And I'm motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this inexpressible gift. God, more more than we thank you for the words of Scripture, we thank you, Jesus Christ, that that you, you gave. God, we thank you that you gave your only son. You gave your most precious possession where your heart was and poured it out for the sake of your kingdom. And I pray that we as Christians, those of us in this room that would name the name of Christ, those of us who would confess who we are in Christ would actually show our submission through our giving. God, this may be the most tangible, practical way of living out our faith that any of us will ever experience because it affects us right where our heart is. So many of our hearts have been hijacked by riches and luxury and a love for money. And God, we pray you'd come usurp that hijacker. Take him off the throne. Take us off the throne. Replace it, Lord, with the glory of Jesus, the coming kingdom, and that our hearts would burn for that. And then, God, as you are generous with us, let us be generous with what you've given to us, generous with our, our money, generous with our time, generous with the resources that you've, you've entrusted to us. God, we are mere stewards of everything. I pray for Christians in this room, God, who have, have, are not giving, stopped giving, stir in their hearts, God, to give. I pray for those whose giving has become so routine it's almost lethargic. Stir us again with a passion so that we would give radically. We would be a radically generous people because of the gospel. And then finally, I pray, God, for those that are neither of those because their hearts have not been changed by the gospel. And now they've heard that though Christ was rich, he became poor and he hung on a cross and he suffered the the death of a slave, even a slave on a cross for their sins in their place. And I pray that by faith in what Jesus Christ has done and by faith in his rising from the dead, their sins would be forgiven. They would repent of those in turn and they would be saved. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We praise you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.